Gospel of John, chapter 6. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, 
the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the book we've been looking at the past few weeks during this season of Lent is called Surprise the World by Michael Frost. He's looking at the ways in which we as Christians could make a deeper impact on the world around us. A few weeks ago, we began with the word bless others, then listen, then eat with others, then listen to the Spirit, and today it's learn Jesus. And here's what he writes about learning Jesus. He writes, there are two primary reasons I'm commending the emphasis on learning Jesus. One is the devotional value of growing closer to Jesus, fostering intimacy with God, hearing the promptings of the Spirit, and sensing His presence in your life, and seeking to conform your life more and more to His will. But there's a second missional reason we need to know Jesus, if we are going to share Him as the reason for the hope we have. Here's a statement that I would make about Jesus. We all follow or reject Jesus on some level. Every person in the world follows or rejects Jesus on some level. The question is, which Jesus are we following or rejecting? So, many in here would call themselves Christians, and my experience has been that many people who claim to be Christians aren't necessarily following the Jesus the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus recorded in Scripture, the Jesus believed and worshipped for centuries. And part of the reason is because as modern Americans, we like to pick and choose. We pick and choose what part of Jesus we read and listen to, what part we believe, and what part we apply. All of us, especially as Americans, come with cultural assumptions about what's true and what's right and what's good. And then we're also very selfish. We have our own desires and needs. And both our assumptions 
and our internal desires shape our view of Jesus. What we assume is, Jesus probably already agrees with what I like. I'm sure he approves of what I'm already doing. Which Jesus are you actually following? If, on the other hand, you're a skeptic in here, what I would say to you is, if you are a skeptic, there are many who reject Jesus and Christianity, but I'm not sure they know fully what they're rejecting. It may be that you associate Jesus, or rather Christianity, with a certain type of politics that you don't like, or bad experiences you or others have had with the church, or you think Christianity is anti-rational. And I would say, if you are going to be a doubter and a skeptic fully, make sure you know what, or rather who, you're rejecting. And the question is, have you actually met Jesus? It's much easier to avoid or mock or deny religious ideology, politicized Christians, or even church leaders who have hurt people. There's many reasons to avoid and deny them. But it's much harder to sidestep Jesus. And so my challenge to us today, whether we are believers or doubters, is to take a look more closely at Jesus. But be warned, if you do, he will affect you in some way. John Eldridge, in the book Beautiful Outlaw, written about Jesus, writes this about the way Jesus affects people. Jesus is not strolling the countryside offering poetry readings. Jesus is on a mission to rescue people who are so utterly deceived, most of them don't want to be rescued. Jesus' honesty and severity are measured out precisely according to the amount of delusion and self-deception encasing his listener. Proof that you have encountered Jesus is his ability in one moment to say the kindest thing and the most startling words the next. Jesus' words are not offensive. It is something in us that is offended. My experience looking deeper at Jesus is he will challenge and he will change everyone who seeks him and anyone who actually encounters him. The most conservative people are challenged by Jesus' love of the least, the immoral, the forgotten, his forgiveness of the most blatant sinners, his care for the poor and the outcast challenges many on the conservative spectrum. And on the liberal spectrum, Jesus' holiness, his demand that we obey God's word, and Jesus' own claim that he is the only way and the Son of God. No matter what spectrum we're on, Jesus will challenge. No one gets off remaining the same if they actually meet Jesus. About seven or eight years ago, I read the Gospel of Luke for a season in my life. Now look, I've grown up as a Christian my whole life. Since I was five, six years old, I was following Jesus. I went through my period as a teenager when I was a zealot and would judge the authenticity of other Christians. I went through a period in my 20s when my theology was all that mattered and I wanted to get as academic and intellectual as I could. And about seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, I was reading through the Gospel of Luke, and you know what? I fell in love with Jesus. I decided I actually really liked Jesus. Maybe again, 
but it actually had this deep impact on me because as I was reading through just the Gospel of Luke, it was Jesus' compassion mixed with truth that challenged me, and I wanted to be with Jesus more and more, and I wanted to be like Jesus more and more. And what I've come to believe and realize is it's all about Jesus. And even when we planted this church five and a half years ago, God had affected my heart and my mind so that all I cared about was that people were drawn to Jesus. I didn't care who gets the credit, and I actually don't care which church they go to, as long as it's Jesus that they are meeting and worshiping. Looking closely at Jesus will shape our hearts, and it will reshape the trajectory of your life. So whether you reject Him or surrender your whole life to Him, if you look at Jesus more closely, you will not be the same. So that's what we're doing this morning, is looking at one day in the life of Jesus together. John chapter 6. I had us read a longer section so you would see what it was like to actually read and experience Jesus a little bit more on your own. So the story, the beginning part of the story, is one that many people know. It's recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus is out with his disciples in the wilderness or somewhere in the distance from the the cities, and there are crowds. Thousands are gathered. He's healing, and he's preaching, and it comes to the end of the day, and he says to his disciples, okay, they're going to be hungry. Why don't we feed them? What are you going to do to feed them, guys? Andrew comes along and says, well, we've found this boy who's got some lunch, a few fish and some loaves, and Jesus says, okay, have everyone sit down. He takes the bread. he, He blesses it, gives thanks to God. He breaks it and distributes And five loaves of bread and two fish feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, and there were 12 basketfuls of food left over. These crowds of people encountered Jesus. What's interesting is their reaction to him. We read in verse 14 and 15, the crowds in John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, They said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the way this starts is they see that he has done this miracle, and they say, okay, this guy is the king. Let's make him king. Their idea was this. There, were, uh, there was a political faction in the first century called the Zealots. They were a group of Jewish people who really wanted a king like David to come and reign, to overthrow bad politicians and to get rid of the Romans and to let them have a kingdom once again. Their assumption was God's vision for his people is to rule and reign politically, just like King David. But what they didn't realize was Jesus' kingdom, though it was radical and subversive, it was radical and subversive because it was upside down. Jesus did not come to take over. He came to die, and he was calling his disciples to do the same. If you go to Jesus looking for political power, he may not meet you where you think he's going to meet you. He may flip everything upside down. So Jesus escapes that night. The next day, these crowds find him. They're looking for Jesus because Well, he had done this miracle and brought them all this lunch. 
Jesus says to them in verse 26 and 27 with these crowds that had found him the next day, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And I think one of the reasons that people come to Christianity or remain Christians is because they're looking for happiness, looking for our needs to be met. And I think Jesus, in this simple statement, is saying, look, don't come thinking if you follow me, everything will be easy, that I'll protect and provide for you in the way that you're asking for. I think the challenge is that many of us approach Jesus and our Christian faith bargaining, kind of like there's an agreement that we've all agreed to that Jesus must agree to as well. If I obey the Ten Commandments, if I go to church, if I pray, then Jesus sort of has to bless you, right? If you stick to Jesus, you'll get a good job, good grades, have healthy kids, be financially successful. And while I know many of us think that's sort of silly, I think there's a part of us back underneath that actually has that view, so that when things don't go well, we wonder where God is. It's as if we've been keeping Jesus in our pocket like a little lucky rabbit's foot. As long as we've got Jesus, as long as we go to church, we got things covered, right? Hedge your bets. Not sure if you believe in God, but you might as well at least go, because, I mean, what if, what if he is there? The problem is, and I think Jesus makes this clear, if you follow him, you give up your rights. You no longer can make demands. When you become his disciple, your whole life becomes his, including your happiness, your needs and desires. The crowds won't relent, though. They keep following him, and they say, okay, Jesus, you're making some audacious claims here. What sign verse 30, what sign will you give that we may see and believe you? What work are you going to perform? Jesus, if you give us some proof, then we'll follow you. I mean, they had just the day before seen him take a few loaves and fish and feed 5,000, but they're asking for one more sign, one more sign, and then we'll follow you. I heard a sermon by Tim Keller talking about how many of us want more proof but the problem is there's no amount of proof that will be enough. And the, the story that he tells or the, the idea that he gives is this. He says, I, I've had conversations with people that if, you, if there was just enough proof and evidence, if Jesus arrived in Manhattan in the middle of the street and a man gets hit by a car and he gets hit so that his hand gets severed and is thrown into the street, but Jesus comes and pulls the hand back, and it connects up to the guy's arm again, and it heals over completely like Wolverine or something like that, and you can't see any scars, and there's no blood. If Jesus came and did that, then I would believe in Jesus. That's all I'm asking. And Keller astutely says, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't necessarily believe in Jesus. You don't realize, none of us realize how much our hearts and minds are turned against God. And no amount of evidence or proof is going to be enough for some of us. But on the other hand, if God is already drawing you to Him, if His Spirit is working in your heart, 
then even the simplest introduction to Jesus is going to bring you to your knees in worship of him. Jesus, in the middle of this whole story, climactically says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You're looking for signs. You're looking for a rabbi. You're looking for a king. You're looking for somebody to meet your needs. I am the bread of life. What you really need is me. I am true manna, spiritual and eternal food come from heaven. All you need is me. Come to me. Believe in me. But that's a hard thing to hear. In verse 41 and 42, we read, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? When the Gospel of John uses the word Jews, it's now referring to religious leaders. That's how he refers to the religious leaders, the rabbis, the Pharisees. So we've moved from the crowds who are demanding all these signs to the religious leaders who are now grumbling about Jesus. You see, what Jesus has said and claimed is inconceivable to them, and it's offensive. Jesus does not match their expectations of a religious leader, of a rabbi. He does not match their assumptions of a Messiah, and he doesn't fit their fixed categories. We know this guy's parents. How can he claim to be from heaven? That's a category we don't have. He must be wrong. And so they grumble. And actually, that word grumble, if you go back to Exodus 17, is the equivalent of an accusation in a formal court of law. They are prosecuting a case. They're putting Jesus on trial. He says that he is from heaven, but we know his parents. There's only one thing left to do. This guy's crazy. Let's lock him up. But as always, when you look at the religious leaders in the Gospels, it also points fingers back to us because we're not that different. We come with our own expectations on what religion is supposed to be like, our assumptions about how everything works, our fixed categories, and Jesus doesn't fit those. We come as doubters saying, well, God is just a spiritual force that you can't really know. It can't be a person. How do you know that? Because God can't be proven totally, I can't believe in God. So you're only going to believe in things you can prove totally. Jesus says that he's the only way. That can't be true. I know people who don't believe in Jesus. And for each of us, if Jesus doesn't align with our assumptions and fixed categories, then Jesus must be wrong. Or we flip it, and we assume Jesus approves of our politics, our worldview, our present choices in life. 
but we do so without getting to know Jesus and letting him challenge us as he does with everyone who meets him, including his disciples. The crowds demand signs. The religious leaders put him on trial. And his disciples, well, many of them find this too hard. We read in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Hundreds had followed him for years. They were his disciples. They were in his church, if you would. But when he said, I am the bread of life, come down from heaven, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, come to me, believe in me, and me alone, it was too hard. And many of his disciples left. So Jesus turns to the twelve and says in verse 67, do you also want to go? Are you twelve going to leave me too? And Peter, for all of his idiocy, comes in clear once again. And he says, to whom shall we go? He's basically saying, what other rabbi are we going to follow? Is there some other religion out there besides you, Jesus? Is there another worldview we're going to chase after? And that's my challenge to you as well. If you come in as a skeptic and a doubter about Jesus, don't just piddle around. If you're going to leave Jesus, go for something else. Don't be a wishy-washy agnostic. Make a decision. Decide where you're going to go. Find somewhere. If not Jesus, where? If not Jesus, who? Jesus, you have the words of eternal life, Peter says. You are the Holy One of God. We have followed you around, and we have come to know that you are the Christ, the Savior, and the Lord. John Eldridge, in his book, Beautiful Outlaw, offers clarity on the way Jesus meets with any of us. Jesus doesn't force anyone to follow him. He never overwhelms anyone's will with a display of his majesty. He woos, confronts, delivers, heals, shoots straight, and uses intrigue. He lives out before his disciples the most compelling view of God, but still he lets them walk away if they choose. The same is true with any of us. Don't be afraid to get to know Jesus. He will not force himself on you. And so whether you are a lifelong Christian or you've recently come to faith, whether you are a die-hard disciple or a die-hard skeptic, we all need to really get to know Jesus. And that's what Michael Frost is talking about in his Surprise the World with number four, the, the thing we're looking at today, learn Jesus. He says, take some time. You owe it to yourself, especially if you're a follower of Christ, to seek Jesus on a regular basis. And his encouragement is to get into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to books about Jesus, to prayer as you're seeking to commune with Jesus. And his argument that he makes in the chapter is, don't abandon the Old Testament, the rest of the Bible. Don't abandon reading theology. Don't abandon practical books, devotional books that aren't just about Jesus. 
but take significant time to learn Jesus so we can become like Jesus. So his encouragement is to get into the Gospels on a regular basis. He says at least once a week, spend 30 minutes or an hour reading about Jesus, getting to know Jesus. You can do this reading like four, five, six chapters of one of the Gospels. You can spend a season, like a season of Lent or this summer, just reading the Gospel of Luke or John or Matthew or all of them. You can read through any of the Gospels in one day. It'll take about an hour and a half to two and a half hours, depending on which Gospel you choose. This, uh, this season that we're in, we're almost approaching Easter. Holy Week is April 9th through 16th. Maybe just take that week to read through the Gospel of Mark or Luke. Pick one. But spend time regularly, weekly, with Jesus, getting to know Him. And on top of that, He offers books as a way. Read books about Jesus. I have a whole collection of them here, and I'm going to give you some. If you want to find one to read over the coming weeks, or you're looking to have something more, if you want something on the more academic side, start with Jesus and the Victory of God. It's a good 750 pages of thick, thick stuff. If you want the simpler version of that, read N.T. Wright's Simply Jesus. But if you want the most academic, go to N.T. Wright. You can either read his thickest or his one that's a little more accessible. If you're a skeptic or you want to see how Jesus interacts with our culture today, read one of Tim Keller's books, either King's Cross, which is really looking at the Gospel of Mark, or Encounters with Jesus, the Gospel of John. And on the more devotional side, you can look at Philip Yancey's The Jesus I Never Knew, which is about 20 years old now. You can look at Read Jesus, which is written by Michael Frost, the author of the book we're looking at now, and Alan Hirsch, or the one that I quoted as well from John Eldridge, Beautiful Outlaw. I'll have these books up here afterwards if you want to piece through them. You can't have my copies. They're all written in, um, but you can look through them and decide if one of them looks more appealing to you, because I would encourage you, spend time in the gospel. Spend time looking at Jesus. Commit to learning Jesus on a regular basis. You know, we at Christ Church Vienna could do discipleship and mission and ministry simply following this book. You know, we have a bunch of things in place, whether it's a Sunday morning church service, ministries for students, small groups, local mission, global mission that we're starting to build. But you know what? We do need more organization. We could probably afford to have more programs, more things in place. But even if all we did was spend two hours as individuals, as, as individuals, two hours each week listening to the Spirit and learning Jesus, and then spent three hours blessing others and eating with others, if we simply did that, we would be growing in our faith so deeply, we'd be impacting the world around us. We'd be connected to God and led by the Spirit and moved out in mission and ministry. We'd be discipling one another, spurring each other on, and impacting our town, our workplace, our schools, our community. If just 100 of the 350 adults who call this their church home did this over the next three years, we would be radically transformed, and so would the community around us. C.S. Lewis said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw people into Christ to make them little Christs. If we are not doing that, 
all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. It is even doubtful whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose, any other purpose than drawing people to Christ and conforming them to the image of Christ. That's our calling as a church and as individual Christians, to be drawn to Christ and to be conformed to the image of Christ. You know, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us, or God incarnate, God in flesh. Jesus walked around actual places and met with actual people. This means place matters and you matter. Your street and school and workplace and the town that you live in matter. Do not overlook them. Jesus entered Bethlehem and Nazareth and Capernaum and Jerusalem, actual places. He didn't enter the whole world all at the same time. He entered particular places at particular times as a particular person named Jesus. That means place matters. And that's where you and I come in. You and I are always particular people in a particular place at a particular time. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then by the Holy Spirit, God dwells in you. And that means you incarnate, sort of, the invisible God. You may be the only Jesus some people ever meet. Michael Frost writes about the implications of this and surprise the world when he says, the term incarnational describes the difficult work of going deep with others. Just as God took on flesh and dwelt among us, so his followers are called to dwell among those to whom they are sent. But how are we to truly dwell among the neighbors to whom God has sent us, patterning, patterning our lot, ourselves on Jesus without fostering the habit of learning Jesus in the Gospels? We are always incarnational. The question is, which God are we incarnating? In Philippians 2, we had our declaration of faith that we said today. But the verse before our confession of faith says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to describe who Christ Jesus is. Have this mind in yourselves, which was the mind in Christ. The aim of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of Christ. We will be that way in heaven, but we're aiming in that direction in this life. But in order to do that, you need to know Jesus like a spouse or a best friend. You know, when someone you loved and knew really well dies, do you know what you find yourself doing? You find yourself wanting them to be present at specific moments to share it with you. Like, he would have loved this restaurant. Or she would have hated this movie. Or this was her favorite song. I remember, I remember mom used to belt this out in the car. And you love that song now. Or you laugh because you think, oh, he would have absolutely hated this because he was so afraid of heights. 
The reason you can say such things about somebody who is no longer with you is because you knew them so well over time. The depth and breadth of your intimacy over years of conversations and shared experiences allows you to speak as if from their perspective. You can imagine what your dad or your wife or your best friend would have said, how they would have felt. And so it is with Jesus. Through Scripture, we engage His parables and encounters with people, His miracles, His crucifixion, His resurrection. In time of seeking Him in prayer and of experiencing Him as He has broken and poured out for us at the communion table, you come to know and know intimately Jesus, the Christ. And then you can represent Jesus. You can speak for Jesus. in a way that reflects his views, his approach, and his life. We are always incarnational, but is it Jesus we are incarnating? Jesus is what the world needs. It's also what we need. Let's pray. Jesus, we invite you into this space and into our hearts and minds. May we meet you this day as you are spoken in the word, as you are broken and poured out at the table. May we meet you in scripture and in prayer and be challenged and changed, conform to your image. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.